Alright guys, you're very welcome on to Heartlines, episode 55, and I've got another very special guest on the line waiting in the wings. He is an ultra endurance athlete. His name is Joe Barr. How are you doing, Joe? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Ain't no worries, no worries, Joe. Good to see you, good to talk to you. Anyway, you. so ultra endur- endurance athlete. How did you get into doing this? What what is that all about? Well, I suppose the description of ultra athlete, first of all, is is uh, is really about the distances that you cover. For me, it's in cycling now. Obviously, it's in in, in athletics and every and multiple other outdoor sports. But for me, it's cycling, and it's really distances anywhere between six hours up to. 12 days that's probably the best spam to put it into uh, but um, ultra cycling is is defined by the governing body it's starting at 200 200 miles um, the governing body is based in us so everything mm-hmm. tends to be in miles and we have to do the conversion to kilometers like but uh, it's somewhere between 200 and and the furthest i've been is 3200 miles so over 500k well that, that must take its toll on your body because i I believe you were a professional cyclist by in, in your in your background. So cycling was was always your kind of passion, and you you've been doing that since. How young did you start out doing cycling? Like professional. I started cycling? off when I was really young. I was at I was at school actually. Mm. I, I started cycling from school, but back then, you know, I mean, I started to actually race bikes in 1972, which was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, you know, next year I'll be at 50 seasons um but it was uh back then second sport in general was very different back in those days like you know it wasn't as formulated and as organized and as professional as it is today but uh, it was still ruthless and difficult to make your way in. and uh i started riding for freedom really that's that's really what i started to ride for um you know back then i'm sure anybody in my era will always have a, a recollection of the famous rally chopper yeah so uh, that that's literally what I started on. I started on a rally chopper, and I, I started to ride. And I got I, I I was actually I live in the well. I grew up in the border border county of Donegal on Derry. Uh, so effectively, we were so close to the border. Uh, you know, the, there was a huge crossover in culture as well. And there was a period of time actually at the height of the troubles, uh, probably around. 68, 69. Uh, my father, who was from Northern Ireland, from Derry, and my mum was from Donegal, uh, he had a passion to go back and, and he and he moved the family back just whenever the troubles kicked off. You know, we came from a different culture, really. Uh, even though it was so close, the culture was so different. Uh, and my mum and the rest of all my siblings, all we all struggled to be there. So my escape was... Uh, to ride my chopper from Derry to get back to my grandmother's and doing all every weekend. So I rode every Friday and back on the Sunday to go to school and all that. But I got then visual of guys riding race bikes and 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 so on and so forth. And, and within a year and a half or two years, I was on a race bike and I was and I had started and you know it's uh, I, I started with a lot of you know great families who helped me to start. It, it, it didn't start by myself, uh, but I wasn't doing it very long until. There was a few of the guys who were already involved in cycling because again it was very sparse, especially in Donegal. You know, it, it was different in Greater Dublin and Belfast and whatever. There was a lot going on as it as still is today. So it was much more difficult geographically for me to, to to make my way. So my my early beginnings was, you know, let's call it the small town uh, festival races that were on around all the towns in Donegal. But it became a became the circuit that I started on and the place where I. I started to find a little bit of purpose and a, and a lot of freedom. 
That's, that was the two things that I started to find. And it just grew from there. It, it brought the, the, the key elements that I needed as a young man, like to, to survive and move and try to move myself forward. And was it, was there a professional, like, was there much of a professional cycling organization in Ireland, like open, like Northern Ireland or Ireland at the time when you were starting out cycling? Uh, well, I would say I, I wouldn't, there, yes is the answer, but I wouldn't refer to it as a professional uh end of the sport but what it was was it was the amateur end uh professionally organized okay. uh, you know so effectively what you had was back then the country was very very split up even southern ireland like was so split it had two federations um mm. and northern ireland had a federation and it took them a long time to get to get together the first big shift was the two bodies in the south came together and were were actually allowed to race with each other and one of the big aspects of that was that one of the the, the bodies the federations could could go to the olympics and the other couldn't uh so effectively that shifted that which was good so you know the 26 counties if you want to call it were all able to go to the olympics and then the, the next big shift came in and i i, I lived through it as well as where they had what they had a tripartite agreement where northern ireland and the came together so all three were together yeah. uh, and could all interact and race and whatever so from uh, I just think from every aspect it was a great step forward for for everything and uh, it was a great time and a great era and that was the era I grew up in and uh, so I seen all of that happen and transform and then um, it then the world the world body started to shift so their requirement became you know one registration per country so effectively, the global the globalization of the sport started to change how the sport had to be deliberated on the ground in each country as well. And Northern Ireland was one of those countries that just had such a diversity in it, where you had not alone the diversity in the sport, but then you had the, the political diversity as well that everyone was trying to overcome. And and that was one of the great things about cycling as well. It, it had this capability without making any great efforts to overcome that. Also as well, I had the opportunity that because my father was from Northern Ireland at that time, it's different now. Like the fact then I was able to go to the Commonwealth Games as well as be eligible to be selected for the Olympic Games. So we had a lot of really good things happening, even in a bad situation, if you want to call it, or not, 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 not a, not a desired situation like that. So that's yeah. probably the better way to put it. Yeah, because you won a bronze medal in '86 in Commonwealth Games. Correct. Yeah, uh, we we were the only we we're the only team really in history that 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 won one on the won a medal on the road. Uh, mm -hmm. There has been medals won on the track and the velodrome uh, since that. Like, but it was, as I say, it was a great era, uh, you know, and it was a it was a great collaboration. I always remember one of the highlights of that particular event was that. Uh, we had the collaboration of uh, Rally Ireland and Tallaght in Dublin and the managing director there, John Beatty, was a huge supporter of what we were doing. And he actually painted the bikes with a emerald green front on them so we could go and whatever. And oh, yeah, I see. It was really cool. Like, it was a really cool thing to do back then. Like, and uh, I, I look back on it now with a lot of fond memories, like the, the group of guys that we had, the four guys that we had on the team time trial. They don't actually have the event on the road anymore. It's in the velodrome now, a four person on the velodrome. We did it for 100k on the road, it's an incredibly difficult race. And uh, that particular year, we were fortunate. Uh, Australians were the uh, leaders in the world at that time, and, and a lot of the world leading guys were part of the Commonwealth. And uh, effectively, we ended up where GB won Australia was second, and we got the bronze and was on Perdillo. Yeah. You know, we beat Canada. No one in, in the media gave us any chance at all. Like, we, they had 
us pretty much right off before we actually yeah. got on there to go. <laughs> but uh, so that was good. That was a very good thing. And uh, and the guys were the four guys, the four of us are still we're still alive and 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 in some shape or form still riding bikes. Except one one had a, one of us one of that team had a really big accident two years ago where he got hit outside out in the road with a car and you know he's he's pretty badly injured and still is today. Like but uh, the other three of us are all still in some way involved in cycling. Yeah. Yeah, that's good to hear. Now, now also as well, now that that's another thing about cycling as well. Like, I mean, you're, you know, I know a friend of mine, and he says he can reach speeds of eighty k, like bombing down hills. Like, would you go that yeah. fast when you're when you're practicing, or do you be more careful because you know you're training for something bigger than just a, a day? Well, there's sometimes in training, like you certainly wouldn't be, you wouldn't be taking any risks whatsoever. Like, mm. but in some of the races that we've been in. Uh, Probably a good example to give you of the current my current world today is there's a when we go to race across America um, there's a infamous descent called the glass elevator and it's where you start the descent down from California towards the desert and into Arizona it takes you to a, a small town called uh, Borrego Springs and uh, you have been a hundred and 1516 k an hour down through down it and we actually have it video the guys videoed it you know had a camera from the car behind it was it was just a section where the top number one and number two in the race uh, had caught me and i was traveling on the road with them but it just happened to be at that section and, and that's the speed we were doing like and i mean there's nights i even watch it myself like and it's i mean it's incredible to watch like because the, the bike is you know it's almost like motorcycle stuff like bikes completely on a 45 degree angle like on some of the corners but it's it's a very unique one because uh, the hot air on that particular climb the hot air comes up from the desert and it's a cliff face edge on one side and it's just into oblivion on the other side it's like coming in and landing an aircraft and if you get it wrong you get it wrong yeah it, yeah it really gets your attention like but when you turn in sometimes there's you know you, you have to be so precise with where you set the bike because there's this up uplift or updraft of hot mm. air that just and it catches the flat section carbon wheels and it, it really just sometimes the bike some feels like the front wheels coming off the ground and it's starting to the bike starting to go on the side like a frisbee uh just with the sheer pressure of the air coming up because it's so hot as well and, you know you're in the 45 degrees temperature like, so it's yeah it's hot and of course, like, you know, when you started out with your Riley Chopper, the technology has changed so, like, uh, much over the years, you know, would you like, you know, the the wheels are different, like, like carbon fiber and all this kind of like, the, the bikes are very different, you know, like they're, they're yeah. made like so different from when you were starting out like does that make a big difference for you for oh yeah i mean i think i think from from writing the whole thing that has all changed i think that one of the things that i always uh, look back on uh and, and and you know it's with a great fondness in that the rally chopper taught me actually the mechanics of how a bike works like every young person like you know certainly i was like i i had this brand new bike that was completely stripped into individual bolts on the kitchen floor and then rebuilt back up again and i discovered things like by you know like simple things like when you use different pressures in the tire it went faster and slower so these very basic it was like a very basic toolkit to learn as you went along so as technology moved along um it's one of the things that i've also got you know going on with myself is that i have a huge mechanical or engineering skill like to actually to actually build bikes as well so i i build race bikes as well like and uh but again coming through the era of racing that i did again i, I was sponsored by rally ireland for almost nine years uh with john Beatty. he very kindly introduced me to his rally at that time in dublin uh, uh separate company but worked 
directly with the Nottingham HQ. And the HQ in Nottingham had a special divisions section, which was separate to the main factory. Uh, and they, they built all the top end race bikes that Rally did at that time, even for their, you know, their World Tour team. And uh, the gentleman who ran that was a man called Gerald O'Donovan. And I got a lot of, I had this great interaction over a number of years with him. Uh, and I got a great education of how you actually build frames and and what the thinking mechanically is behind him. And, you know, he used to always say to me, don't complicate it. Like it's three triangles and two circles. Yes, the technology has changed because the, the composition of the components that they make it out has changed, mm. but it's still three, three triangles and two circles. That's effectively what it is. And uh, yeah, I've gone through all those generations of all those transformations and technology is, has, has, has moved forward, 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 forward. But I think it's very easy in the middle of all the, let's call it the marketing uh, melee that goes on in the world today to lose sight of the fact that it's a machine that needs to be actually moved by humans power and there's limitations to what that machine can do within that, that that relationship i think that there's a lot of very good media stories and marketing stories out there as to how technology actually moves things but i think at one of the biggest places that it has certain definitely has come in is in relation to aerodynamics and how bikes move through air um, and, and better ways to do that but again, it's like everything is in the world today, as we've moved through all those different phases or whatever, costs have just, you know, started to get to a level now where even if you apply common sense, it's hard to justify it. But again, we're back to marketing and whatever. Yeah. Like so, uh, But one of the things I don't like about that is that it's, it's actually starting to push the thought pattern of people to a degree that they, they can't see a way that how can I do that? How could I how, how could I compete against that? How could I? I'm never going to have one of those. You know, all of those questions get asked. Where in actual fact, if you have you know raw capability with a huge amount of hard work and the correct people managing that from a human aspect, you will find that if you give that individual any kind of a pushback, he'd make it go quicker. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the piece I don't like about it. It's starting to sell a message that the sport is getting beyond. You know, it's getting like Formula One, like it's like, you know, it's, it's beyond the comprehension of, of the ordinary people. And that's one of the reasons why I like endurance racing and why I've come to love it is because that's almost removed from it. Yes, it's there for sure. There's also a message that get clearly circulates within the sport to say that, but that's not the limiting factor. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you progress and you become good enough, there's windows and ways to access that kind of stuff. And if there's not, then you can just enjoy doing what you're doing at the level you're doing it at. Um, but I think it's like, you know, like all social media platforms where, I mean, we hear it every day, if you watch switch on the TV, where young people are being influenced by stuff that they're looking at. And I mean, that's, it's no different in our world where people are being influenced by that mindset. You know, I don't think that that's a healthy or good thing going forward for the sport, but it's certainly very prevalent at the moment. Yeah. Like... You know, you talk about like you have to own kind of, you know, your weaknesses as well as your your, your strengths as well. You know, I mean, because professional cycling, I, I, I don't know what it's like. I, I watch all these like Tour de France and Giro d'Italia and it's fairly competitive, you know, and like there's always going to be a team and they always focus on one guy in the team to win, you know, or there might be a mountain guy or whatever. But how is it different? How is it different professional cycling to endurance cycling, you know? You know, training wise, is it is it very different training wise, or, or very similar? I think that there's a lot of similarities in it. Mm. Uh, there's certainly a difference in the distance that we travel, and there's a difference in the mindset of the people in it. Like, really, if you look at the Tour de France, for example, like you know, uh, you know, to put it into context for for for, for your audience, like I, mm. I think that 
way we would describe it is that you have the Tour de France, which is 23 days long. The stages are 100 or 130 miles or whatever the stages are over that period of time. You stay in a hotel, you do whatever. Mm. And uh, Race Across America is actually a little bit longer, uh, obviously, than the Tour de France. But it's over in 12 days. It's finished. We're all gone home. Yeah. <laughs> right. So effectively... You know, it, it's about how quickly you can actually cover that distance. And, and there isn't the luxuries of the hotels and the stops and the recoveries and all that's nonstop. Right? So it's a very different aspect. But where, 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 the, where it, it, it reflects the same thing is, like you said there, that there's one rider usually nominated to actually, you know, to actually be the overall winner. Mm. However, you have, this, you have the, the other X number of team that's contributing to that over this three-week period, all hoping that they can, that their game plan is actually going to make sure that that guy, that their guy is in yellow jersey and winning the Tour de France at the finish. Yeah. For me, for me even though I'm the rider, I have a, you know, eight to ten person team that's actually traveling with me as well. So I'm not the only person that's involved in my situation either. Their objective is to ensure that that guy who we've nominated, and by the way, he's the guy out in the bike right now, that we can win this race that we're involved in over yeah. this nonstop. So they're managing, you know, sleep deprivation. They're managing all the logistics. They're on the go. So there's no hotel stops. So there's no nothing. Like so, I'm still pulled over the side of the road. You know, I'm riding for 23 hours a day. I get maybe a day and a one hour sleep if I'm lucky. First two days of any big long race, no sleep at all. It'll be 48 hours without getting up, without sleep. Uh, and all the big long races are like that. So, but it's still a team effort. It's not a solo effort. Over a calendar year, how many endurance uh, races would you enter into? That's kind because of, then that will show you your recovery from each race. Because you said deprivation, tiredness, you can't be doing it every week, can you? No, absolutely not. Although you know, I'm training, I'm training usually six days out of seven. Um, but it depends on the, what the season looks like, and it depends what the overall objective for the year is. Normally, up until lock, lockdown sort of has changed the platform of, of everything right now and we're hopeful to get back to what we would we would you know recognize as normal next year but normally um we would start the season uh with the shorter distance and the shorter distance for us being 24 hours uh, but obviously there's a the shorter the distance the higher the speed so there's always a requirement around that and we would and we're very fortunate that the first one's usually in sebring and florida uh, so that you know it's usually reasonably good weather and, and and it allows you to get come out of a winter if you're in ireland like just being pretty mundane actually and and get going there so we would do maybe four or five races in the year but if it was a, a season where you you were following we were participating in the world cup which we have been up until 2019 you're looking at normally four or five really big races in the year uh and when i say big like i'm talking race across america i'm talking even race around ireland which is six days but it's a incredibly difficult six days um that's actually one of the most difficult on the whole circuit we would probably be in a race across italy as well because it's a good preparation race for race across america uh and then we would be finishing off the world cup at the other end of Race Across America or after Ireland or whatever with like a 12-hour race uh, that we need to do because the World Cup requires you to actually complete 12, 24 and two, two longer distances out of the whole season to be actually eligible to count for that. And we have been chasing that for since really since I won the, I won the 500 World Championship in 2017. But we've been following, we've been following trying to win the overall you know, full distance race um, uh, for the three years. And we came really close in 20, 
19 when we were second and 2020 we were set to go back to you mm. know and it just all i was actually in sebring until until and my partner and i were in sebring uh to start the season um and it was just when the lockdown thing got announced and you know uh we got home from sebring and and that was it it was over and yeah. it's been over since <laughs> yeah. so it's uh but we've done a lot we've been very fortunate in that we've been able to do a lot of uh, individual um record rights which are defined by guinness or the world governing body and they were rights that we were still able to do and you know within within the parameters and windows of the lockdown um a lot of management and and a lot of negotiation to get it to happen but what it meant for us as a sporting team like was to be able to suffice you know what was required for sponsors to keep the sponsors intact so our focus became very much you know what we needed to do to keep everything rolling and, and until we got out the other side of that that has been a huge effort to do that but in the middle of all of that which was which was very tricky and difficult we managed to to wreck three world records in the long time <laughs> so it's, it's a very unusual situation like but it's uh, uh you know the last one we did there was just in august and uh you know, we did the full wild atlantic way which was just absolutely incredible event um you know 1500 miles 2300k i think it is long 1500 uh but my goodness what a route and what a, what an experience when you say team so you said you said eight people behind you so are your team from locally near you or have you brought them in from like they've just oh, they're, all over, uh, they're, yeah. they're all over they're all over and uh you know over the years you know when i started i started ultra insurance racing in 2009 and uh over the years i i had a very you know stable group of people for a quite a long period of time but there comes a point like when people get tired moving around the world and they get tired doing what they're doing and they're cutting out huge chunks of their year to go and do this kind of stuff um and then there comes a point whenever you're doing the same kind of races over year on year and year it gets to the point where you know what i'm just on with us or whatever so and just at sort of when the lockdown started or prior to it, our team shifted and it started to change. And within the lockdown, we've changed the whole team. So, you know, I have American. Uh, we This year coming now, we have three American. Uh, we have one Welsh, uh, three stroke four from the south of Ireland. And we have two from up here in Northern Ireland. Uh, uh, and and it's a fantastic mix, uh, you know, culture mix within the team, and they're all highly skilled people in their own right. And uh, and you know when they all come together, and like someone like the Wild Atlantic Way, when you see them actually performing as a group of people who've come together, it's usually so different to their normal day. Uh, I mean, they're an incredible group the way they work together, and it's one of the reasons that I, as a solo individual sports person, and and us as a team, has been so successful. They blend so well together, and you know, and and again, they they they're as I say, they're highly skilled in their own in their in their own talent, like and yeah. uh, they bring a lot to the table. So they do, and uh, it never ceases to amaze me, like that. You know, when you get to a point in some of those big races where you know, everyone is exhausted that they can still find a way to, you know, to overcome whatever the, the obstacle is, because that's effectively what we're doing. Like it's, uh, 
you know, it's the art of, of, of constant motion. That's effectively what we're trying to produce. And uh, there's always obstacles to stop that. Um, not indifferent to life, to be honest. So they're always finding those solutions on the way and not, you know, getting into, into getting the team into a situation, you know, where me and the bike stops because once I stop, that's the problem. That's, you, you know, once I stop, we're losing time and we're not, we're not going to be where we need to be. Like, so they have to, they're very sharp thinking on their feet and uh and they're very collaborative as well they, they they collaborate with each other because the structure of our team is that or of all the teams really is that you know there's one designated person like that we, mm. we would refer to as a road captain and effectively they have to collaborate because they're working on shifts you know they're working on maybe eight hour shifts or 12 hour shifts uh and, and and they have to hand over and collaborate with each other and maybe even when one's off shift they have to connect to say we're doing this you know have you got a better idea or is there something you know that we we need to do here to, to keep this moving forward uh, so sometimes it never ceases to amaze me when they tell me maybe i sell first off for whatever reason and they tell me what has happened in the last four three four hours to, to make it to keep it moving you you, yeah. you just go how did you actually do that yeah. uh, but they do uh, because for me it's oblivion all my job is to ride the bike at that point um so i don't see all the stuff i see some of it but not all of it that's something and uh and when you get into is like race across america where you're continually on the move through deserts and altitude and extreme heat and all of that stuff day after day you get to day six seven eight nine ten it doesn't really matter what human body you're talking about it yeah. begins to lag and get tired and and the crew are tired and you know that they're continually driving and moving and you say oh well you got 12 hours off well they, well, they don't because they got a big commute to get to wherever they're going they got a window of stuff to do you know get showered do whatever get asleep and then they got to commute to get back to where they're supposed to be at so it's this continual moving and evolving uh unit that's moving yeah. along the road. and america's linear like because you're, you're just going one direction like you're going so there's no it's not like the wild atlantic way where you're there's places you're actually going in circles and you're disoriented and, and stuff like that and it's very different like but uh but it's been for me it's been an education working with some of the people that that has worked with me do people have many motivations to get into this sport have they been professional cyclists are they endurance athletes do do, do, do triathlon do, do do all these kind of like backgrounds like that i think it, i think that there's a there's a huge diversity in the type of people that come to endurance cycling um hmm. yes is the answer you have what we would refer to as adventure people who do mountaineering yeah. one of my, my best friend uh len forkos in, in washington dc uh, is about number five, I think, of the seven summits, and he's finished race across America twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like a cool yeah. dude, like, <laughs> uh, and uh, and 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 one of the biggest inspirations probably for me uh, when I started with my first go in race across America when I didn't finish, like it, he was the inspiration for me, like, and he talked me through going back in 2014, and and so there's people like that. Then there's people who just get to a point in life where they want to do something to challenge themselves, mm. uh, to, you know, to get out of the mundane situation or the place that they've arrived in in their mind where, you know, they're trying to self find a little bit of self-worth or they're trying to just live a life that for whatever reason eluded them to the point that they just, uh, not very many who are ex-professional writers. I'm, I'm probably a, a very, very small uh, group, of, you know, maybe, and I'm going to, say as small as five in the, in the ultra world that ever has crossed over. But what has started to happen now is a phenomenon where the mainstream world, the world tour rider teams that we now know today, the 
they have now picked up, and there's quite a number of the Pro Tour teams. I think the EF team, uh, Jonathan Waters, runs in the US, although it's European-based, is currently, you know, uh, World Tour, uh, Tour de France team, um, has really started to, you know, empower a number of the riders within their team to do uh, long-distance stuff like. So they, they, they did one there where they had one of their riders ride to complete Tour de France in front of the race. So there's, there is this appetite. There is this appetite now in World Tour to see because you know there's some of the stuff that's happening in ultra cycling that is just it's incredible to think that people can do that like you know the likes of the austrian christoph strasser who has cross race across america it's 3100 miles long and he did it in seven days and 15 hours like if you got in your car now you would struggle to do that yeah 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 legally yeah you would struggle to do that but he has achieved that um you know he's he's rode over a thousand kilometers in 24 hours you know, that's a phenomenal athlete that you're talking about. So we're just starting to see that. But the bit, again, like I'll go back to the bit that I like about the sport is that, um, you know, there's there's just, you know, people who have done their local sport for they've did, you know, some little local charity ride or whatever, and they just want to challenge. They want to see, can I go further? And everybody's interpretation of going further for them is all in context to them. So effectively, someone who has only ever rode 60 miles and has now rode 200, is the same as me saying, well, I've rode 3,000 and I'm not going to ride 5,000. You know, it's all in context. So it's still going to bring them the same um, accreditation for themselves and the same self-worth for themselves, uh, regardless of what the distance is. And that's one of the things I like about it as well. When you go to some of the races, like, you know, if I read... Some of the time, I don't read a lot of it, but I read down through some of our social media responses when you're in, after you've been in a big race. Like, and I mean, I, I'm very fortunate. I have a fantastic following and the people are so supportive when you go racing and some of the messages they send incredible. However, there's always words that stand out for me and it's like machine and hard as nails and all of those kind of individual words. None of those are true because I'm not that at all. I'm, I'm I'm, I'm completely opposite to that. I, you know, you know, it's people say, oh, but you know, they use this bravado context that you just push through things. Like, you know, the reality is, in the level of racing or the type of racing that we're doing, you cannot, you you cannot survive in Race Across America with a bravado attitude. You know, the amount of things that I had to change, I had to change my mindset and how I actually approached things. One of the biggest parts of ultra endurance cycling to overcome is nighttime and to ride in the nighttime in the dark, right? And to keep continually keep pushing forward in the dark because the dark will bring a number of obstacles that do not exist in the daytime. Um, and one of the things that I ha- I had to learn, and I was approaching it at the start from, with the bravado approach, um, it became very evident when we started to actually analyze data that approach was actually making me be off the bike more in the nighttime than someone who was actually behaving differently where they had actually slowed down. And when you started to interrogate that, you sort of had to ask yourself, well, if I slow down, what does that actually mean? Uh, well, it means that there is a whole pile of other options that become available because you're not in this fight. Right, because the fight's winning. The reality is the fight was winning. I, I wasn't winning, I was off the bike. So every time I'm off the bike, the average speed's dropping down. So the example, you know, I would start race across America. 20 minutes later, Christoph Strasser or half an hour of Christoph Strasser would start race across America, same course, right? Pass me by, right? And I would get to 
the top of the, the Rockies, I would get to the Great Divide, thousand miles or whatever, twelve hundred miles or whatever it is in the race. He was in another state ahead, a full state, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? And it's whenever you you stop and you go, hang on a minute. I mean, I'm traveling as fast as he's traveling in the daytime. Yet and all, here we are, four days or whatever, and he's a state ahead of me. How, how's that? How's that possible? Mm. It's when you start to understand that. So I had to change my whole mindset. You know, you're not as hard as nails because there's times you're absolutely hanging by a thread. And that's where the team comes in. Um, and, and the team step in and they fill that void. And they talk you through that. They give you different you know, options as to what's going on. And they, and they talk you all the way through that. And that's the one thing that I've come to really love with endurance racing that I didn't have in mainstream racing was, you know, we're traveling this road together. But the reality is each one of those eight or 10 people that's on that race is experiencing a completely different journey, even though we're all together. Yeah. And, and it's not to debrief afterwards that you realize that, that that's happening. Um, so effectively, for me, whenever you are in the middle of Utah or you're in the middle of Kansas and there's a massive storm and you feel like a you know, like a stick insect, like you're so tiny in this vastness, right? that the, the one thing that I found from it is that the vulnerability that you have at that moment in time goes away because there's people there to talk to, you know, that they're there to support that and, you know, reach out to them and tell them that you're in trouble, that, you know, you're, you're just hanging by a thread or whatever and talk your way through that. Um, whereas before I didn't do that. I, you know, I, I had everything, you know, bottled in and I was trying to do it the bravado route yeah. um, and it wasn't until i overcame that aspect of it and allowed that vulnerability to just exist when it needed to um, and also to reach out to the team to tell to, to empower them with what's going on so they could actually engage their skills and, and take you to the next point that's whenever my whole the whole career of what i'm doing since i started went from linear to <laughs> horizontal <laughs> yeah. like was there much of a was there much of a gap between when you stopped professional cycling and you started doing endurance and, and was there like were you missing cycling to a point that you just thought i want to do something that is still cycling but of course not you know doing the you know tours anymore no i think that you know my the level of, i wasn't good enough to be at the you know the, let's call it the superstar level and it was more an existence than it was you know an enjoyment for me in it but i've been still very you know i've still had a lot of successes when i started and that's 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 probably the you know the the main thing about it but one of the things that i've done is uh, I, I followed this journey um that I'm on and I've been off the path of it a few times uh, you know quite a number of times to be honest but I've always for different reasons found my way back to it when I stopped racing in 98 when I stopped mainstream racing in 98 it was just after the last selection of Commonwealth Games and I'd had a pretty hefty accident actually um you know not race related it was it happened out training and I recovered from it and but I never really got back to the level that I was at. And it was at that point, it was around 98, 99, 2000, I decided, right, that's it, I'm, 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 I'm done with that. But fortunately, you know, you know, racing's one thing, like, but but cycling is a different part of it. And, you know, the, you know, racing's only one part of the whole thing. And I, I was very fortunate that I kept riding my bike. You know, I got into what most people call normal life job uh, and all of that stuff. Uh, I got married and uh, I had 
two sons and the second son my second one my second son was born um in 2007 he was born uh with a neuroblastoma tumor in his brain and he was only baby like uh, so five months old we were straight into the cancer program uh with him and uh that was a that was probably the biggest defining moment in my life actually um you know the worst it's the worst thing you could ever imagine happen um but i look back on it now like and it was just it was just a you know a blessing in disguise because it stopped me in the track of the the route that i was on in my life it woke me up to stuff that i was just oblivion to and quite ignorant to be to be truthful <clears throat> and and i started to realize like you know that I, sort of the real the, the real pieces of life that were important uh, and it was in that journey of whatever maybe around 14 months or so um i decided just to do like any person or not a sports person just any person would want to do some fundraising for that charity and i was in a little respite centered up in newcastle and kind of down because my son was treated in a royal victoria hospital in Belfast, like so and we were very fortunate we had some fantastic uh surgeons and and uh and treatment consultants there like at that time and uh they ross you know survived and my son's name's ross and he survived he's he's 14 i was 14 just last week and uh but i got into to doing this fundraiser and ironically um the race around ireland which is the biggest ultra race there is in, in ireland for obviously but also one of the biggest in the world um uh, came in 2009 to ireland and i seen it knew nothing about it and i mean absolutely nothing other than it was this huge bike ride right around ireland anti-clockwise and uh and i remember reading a little bit about it on the internet in the hospital and uh so i rang up my friend and my best friend Alan, and i said you know like maybe we could do this thing i don't know what it is like or whatever and we try to figure out how to do it and we ended up with something like 20 people helping us on this team like i mean the team was like ridiculously too big yeah. <laughs> what we were aiming for was five days of fundraising for this charity like and at that time uh it was a little respite center and just based at the base of steve donard in the moor mountains and it was it was literally a little bungalow that uh, some lady had donated and there was three families in it it's a respite to put the family back together again the vision for it was to build a place that housed 26 families right and it's now very famous and it's called daisy village and you have people like rory mcelroy supporting it and, and whatever it's a fantastic facility and the great story of it is just this year they're about to build the exact same in kong and county mayo so this so south of Ireland will have and same body that's building it it's a great cross-border initiative and if it what i know about what it has done in in this part of northern ireland if it does the same in the south of ireland it's fantastic because i've done work uh down in batters and and barstown as well like in the mr great facility but that's that's where i started that's how race around ireland came alan harry the organizer down there had done race across america on a team and he just brought the concept to ireland and convinced them to do one in ireland uh, i went to it i was still in the hospital and i was training a little bit and i was doing whatever like but uh i got into this there's a the world champion was there uh his name was fabio biasal italian guy and uh and, and there's a lot of other you know and, and i knew nothing and anyway he was getting interviewed i was the last writer off the start line and he got interviewed and we were in the middle of uh navin the race started in navin then it now starts in trim uh, right outside the castle and, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, really. yeah, it's a fantastic setting every year for the start 
uh, and part of that salmon festival that they were on Trimlock. But back, the very first one was in Navan, so all the people were in the middle of Navan, whatever. And I was standing in the holding area, and he goes, I'm not getting off my bike for 50 hours, and I nearly fell over. I was just going, how am I going to do that? <laughs> and I was sort of going, this guy's crazy. Like, there's no way, there's no way you can do that. So anyway, in my world previously, I had, I had always said to myself, you know, a, a little bit naively. Well, I had rode m- m- Mizzen to Mall or Mizzen to Fairhead, and I had I had actually done the actual UCI record there. Like so, I, I had held the record for that distance as on mainstream. So it was like twenty four hours. So I thought, you know what? Bet, worst case scenario here, I can ride for twenty four hours, and then I'll sleep, and then I'll go again, and I'll I'll figure it out. I'll make it up as I go along, and and that's really the way it was. But when we got to the west of Ireland. I wasn't really that far behind him. And then I started, I got sucked into this fight of the race. And I kind of, you know, didn't forget about the charity. But what happened was, as the race progressed and unfolded, because it was getting, it was live tracked and whatever, the public got massively behind it. And all of a sudden, I got into this huge sports event, mm. <laughs> as opposed to a fundraising event. Yeah. Um, and, and um, well, the race is like 1,400 miles, so at about 1,000 miles. We were in the Black Valley in Kerry, actually. I, I, I was almost on him, and I caught him and missed him. I caught right by him on the road and passed him, and at the all, he retired, and I ended up winning the race around the first time. That has been a complete fluke, but that's that's really what happened. And uh, I qualified, because it was a world round, I qualified for Race Cross America, which you have to do. You can't just put an entry under Race Cross America. Uh, I qualified for Race Cross America and uh, continued in the concert program with my son. It was very successful, the whole fundraising thing and whatever. And uh, BBC actually made a documentary about it and that even took it to a whole different level. Uh, they called it No Ordinary Show, the documentary. It was, it was a fantastic thing for me to make at that time because it also you know, alleviated the pressure cooker that I was in myself with what was going on in my own family and my own life and, and whatever. And, and it was a time back then, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the same anymore. Like, but back then I, I always found that from a, from a man's point of view, there was, there wasn't a huge amount of real compassion towards the man in the whole situation. Uh, uh, because I almost, it's something that started to come through in ultra racing for me, and it was the same kind of words like, "Oh, you know, he's as hard as nails; he'd be fine." And that, you know, the reality is, no, no, we're not. We fall apart, and we, mm. you know, and we are falling apart. Then we're not allowed to fall apart because we're supposed to be as hard as nails. And then we start living the story that's being told, you know, and it, it just, it just was an absolute pressure cooker of darkness for me. Like, and that stuff started to open up, and I realized that. That, that ultra racing was this place of freedom and it was a place of self-worth and it was a place that I could express who I really was and whatever. Um, and, and, and I slowly got into it. I went to Race Across America in 2012 and I never finished. Um, you know, I got I got altitude sickness in the Rockies and I almost lost my own life because of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I was very, very lucky to get away. I, If it hadn't have been for one nurse in the hospital at the there's a hospital right at the top of the Rockies and a place called uh, South Fork. It's just off the north of the Great Divide. And, uh, you know, they're used cats and people with altitude sickness because of the nature of people going up there and getting caught. I mean, it's a desolate place. Like, mm. and, uh, but they saved my life, literally. I mean, I had, I had like, I was on a window of about three hours or four hours. So it could have went either way. And, uh, and it was after that that my friend and Fork was really really talked me through 
you know, getting myself together again and going back in 2014, which I did again. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, 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 that comes from that situation, Mike. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's the crossover from life to ultra cycling is just so close. Yeah. These, these, uh, these moments in your life must kind of pass through your head when you're kind of, you know, feeling it on on the race do they like when you're kind of at your your lowest energy uh, you know maybe oh, yeah. three or four days into do these kind of pass through your mind and kind of go you know keep going keep absolutely. going you know you've come too absolutely. far absolutely i always i always i always actually you know in my own mind um i there is a place um you know i'm very fortunate that my partner jill has has a, has a complete understanding of me like and uh and when I say complete understanding, I mean a complete understanding. Uh, and I don't have a problem anymore putting myself into the place of that total vulnerability that I have to go to because one of the key aspects is I cannot get to the next part unless I can achieve that. I can't do that. Uh, but whenever you're in that very vulnerable place, it, it, it just drags me back to the place of whenever my son was sick. Um, and whenever I was in the process of getting educated, because that's what it was for me, um, I, even when I went to the first race around Ireland, I was getting absolutely killed every day and every, especially in the nighttime because it was so difficult for me. But there was two, two things that came to light in the very first race around Ireland. And that's where I switched from being in, in, in the let's call it in the fundraising event to actually getting into the race to to achieve the point of if i win this race my this fundraising will be triple quadruple what it would be before so that, that's the place i got to in my head when i got to that place one of the things that that started to to really emerge was first of all i think that the way i'll term it here is like i always i now know that um life has prepared you for the road ahead I now know that, and, and the evidence that I'll give you of that is whenever I was in the hospital, um, because of the nature and the hematology ward, my wife of then and myself shared the load, like, so we were, I would do four days and four nights, and she would come up, because we had another son, and she was looking after the other boy, like, and whatever, and, and he was getting run over in the process, so he was in a whole different phase of this situation, so I started to realise in Race Around Ireland, hang on a minute, like, I'm, I'm already doing four nights, in the hospital doing this but at the beginning i had no way to relate that to what i was doing on the bike so i kept saying to myself no no this is just another night of doing this and this and this and i talked myself through it and i talked myself through it and, and then the other piece that i kept saying to myself was because of the nature of what i had had taken on to do which was to do the fundraising for all kids i was on a hematology ward where i knew every one of whatever it was 14 kids or whatever by first name because I was going, I was passing them every day in a corridor or, or their parents and I got to know who they were. And the, the one thing that I come to realize was it didn't matter how they felt the next day, that day had to continue. And it didn't matter how they felt that night, the next day had to continue. And, and it just, there was no way out. You have got to keep, you cannot get off this no matter what happens. You've got to stay with it. Uh, and even today, like even in races like, you know, Wild Atlantic Way that we've been on only a few, it's the same thought. It's just, no matter what happens, do not get up. Mm. It doesn't matter about winning, losing, doesn't matter about all that. It, it's, it's all about just keeping going and, and finding your way through all of those obstacles. Like, and, and again, 
using the team to help you to get through them like and it's and it is all achievable and and, you, and you're not you know you're not hard as nails and you're not a machine you're not yeah. nails. so you're winning when you're on the bike you're winning like your battle you know you, as in you get in get in get into the race and you finish the race okay you want to win but you also want to like just finish the race and do yourself kind of proud and do your family proud yeah i think that one of the things that i've evolved to right now is you know obviously i'm a competitive athlete and we have sponsors so there's a competitive aspect to this mm. but I, I within my own self i don't count it anymore by successes or wins or results you know i don't count it like that anymore you know, one of the things that i get a huge amount of enjoyment out of myself is that we get an awful lot i get an awful lot of mail and and, and just messages of and people are inspired by what you do they see what you're doing and they take that and somewhere whatever it is that's going on in their life they fit that into their life they you know they say I want to do this thing over here for me, which is not what he's doing. But what he's doing is inspiring me to tell me, you know what, I can do that. It's almost the level of inspiration that you deliver to people now. It's, it's a great award. It really is. And some of the messages I get like from people, for so long I've talked about this or that, or or I've been so long feeling like this, and I'm, and I'm now not that. And it was because I watched you. And it may not even be saying that they were watching the whole race. They may have clipped on the one video of one live feed that was in a, that moment was the correct moment for them to for them to take that and activate whatever they were doing themselves. Uh, so there's there's a huge amount of that happening now. And uh, you know, you know, we be posting something that's happening or going on. The amount of people now with that is globally engaged in that with us is is is, is really inspiring as well. Like, um so it's uh I, I get a lot from that and it's really just about i think that for me now it's it's more about the, it's a community of people uh, that we've started to work and build with like and that community has been you know they at the end of the day there's sometimes messages i remember i always remember the last 50 miles of the 2019 race across america and i was really in trouble uh you know it, you know, i was winning the, i was winning the category that i was in and you know uh, but there was a point in it where, you know, the wheels almost did come off the wagon. And uh, I, there's this image, I mean, I always always think about it. Um, there was an image where I pulled over to the side of the road and it was, it was in Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, I pulled over, the, the rear uh, red flashing light had gone out, like, and that's, I can't, the rules, I'm not allowed to keep moving. I got to stop. So they, they pulled me over to the side of the road to change the rear light. But while the mechanic was doing that or whatever, uh, Alan, who's the crew chief, like came out to just to have a talk because obviously you were talking on the radio. It's nice sometimes just to have a verbal talk. Um, and he came out and he started to talk. And there's this image that was taken from the car where he was stood, he's a big guy, like six foot three or whatever. And, and I wasn't really, I was straight legged on the bike, like the bike was between the legs. And, and I fell across like diagonally to my left and just fell asleep, stood up, fell asleep lying next to him. And there was this image that went out of, you know, on the internet or whatever. That image just, people just absolutely attracted to it like a magnet. And uh, uh, the, the way the, 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 pop, the population that was following us like engaged in that moment and what it felt like for them, some of the messages offered was incredible. So I come to realize as well, that it's not actually always what you're saying uh, that impacts people, but it's it's a certain image at a certain point for people in whatever's going on in their life that impacts them. Um, and uh, 
and whenever you hear things like that, you then realize like it, there's a lot more attached to, to what you're doing than just riding to win races. Mm. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible feeling like it's, it helps me actually in my own, that you're actually contributing to helping other people in some shape or form. You're not a typical 60, early 60 something year old man. Okay. So like you say, you train six out of seven days. Let's talk about your yeah. nutrition, rest, recovery. Like, how does that work? Like, what do you, do you watch where you eat? Cause you look fairly fit to me, you know, from what I'm looking at you, you know, you're a fit man. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been a lifelong part, you know, performance and nutrition has been my, my life. Like I yeah. like really, um, but I think, uh, you know, I've also been very fortunate that I've, I've always, for whatever reason, I've had the right people around me, um, you know, telling me or directing me i made i still made a lot of mistakes don't get me wrong uh but i was always i always the only thing the only one thing i ever wanted to do in life from being a kid was to be a professional bike rider that's all i ever wanted to do um but i also now realize that there was an awful lot of you know real life reasons as to why i got attracted to that it just that just happened to be my thing uh, yeah. you know uh, but for me, like we live, you know, people say, oh, what you do, like it's not very healthy. Um, but the reality is there, there's an element of truth to that when you're in the race. But you also got to, you got to also remember that every other day of my life, I live a life that's, that's, that is complete performance, uh, both nutritionally, rest ways and everything else. Uh, so, you know, a, a typical day for us is like, you know, we, my partner and I, Jill's a top nutritionist. That's what she does. That's what she does professionally. And, uh, and I met Jill uh, 30 years ago, I met Jill, um, and she worked with me then. And the year, I was just professional at the time, and that two years, I was probably at my absolute best. And we went off and had separate lives. Um, you know, we were together as a couple back then, but we, but we went off on separate lives. And, uh, you know, she was in Canada for 30 years, and I went off and, and, and got to where I'm at. But ironically, in just after Race Costs America in 2014, uh, we reconnected again and we ended up together again. And, yeah. and like, I, I, Jill, Jill and I lived together. Like, and what you, the body you're looking at right now, she has built. Yeah. That's, probably, that's probably the best way for me to explain that. Um, because it's not a case of where, you know, I get handed a sheet of paper and say, go and do that. Like, we're actually living it. She, she makes it, she, she constructs it in mm. relation to where I'm at, what we're, what we're going to be doing, what we've just come from in relation to recovery. So the nutritional plan is built in all different platforms of preparation in, after, etc. And we live it every day. Like, I mean, we get up every day, we do a lot of juicing, uh, we juice a lot of fruits every day. Uh, and people say, "Oh, that's very time-consuming, and we don't have time to do all of that." Right? But in our world, we make time to do for the, do that because that's part of what we do. Mm. Uh, and you know, we'll have a our breakfast is probably one of our most relaxed times in the day, where we you know we talk about what, what's happening with training, we talk about the business of the team, and all of that good stuff. Uh, you know, and 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 I train. And regardless, you know, because training is very different as well. I mean, it's not the same thing every day. Uh, we do an awful lot of different sessions of training, and some of them are really long, where I'm gone all day, or some of them are short. On trainer works twice a day or whatever. And if it's that, you know, we do an awful lot of the, the nutrition is built around getting ready to do those sessions and what happens afterwards. Uh, and I, we coach a lot. 
and, and Jill teaches nutrition and we do that after dinner in the evening time so we have full days of training yeah. and coaching and, and most days you know we're falling into bed at nine o'clock at night is <laughs> <laughs> there a, a power couple in every sense really yeah I mean it's very unique and, and mm. we have this we have found this place in the sport like not just here in Ireland but globally like we have we do coaching all over the world like and, and Jill co- coaches nutrition all over the world and uh but yeah it's very very unique and we're very well known globally in the sport and uh for that for that reason um and we're very fortunate as well that you know the team drives a very unique media package that goes with so what we do is you know you know something actually um very famous name in, in cycling pat McQuaid, um who was the former president of the uca and I came through the era where Pat was actually a manager for me for a while in the Irish teams, national teams. And I always remember one thing I that he taught me. Um, we, we were we had my my conversations with Pat were always brief, but I remember him always saying that uh, you know you really cycling really needs to get taken to the people for them to understand it and stop expecting the people coming. And that's what we've done with ultra cycling. We we you know we took all those races that we've done around the world and we've put the best media package we could, some of it not so great, some of it getting better <laughs> uh, and, 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 and brought it to this wider audience. So we're very well renowned for that, for bringing those stories to, to, to people's homes. Like, and the evidence of that was in, in 2000, when the first lockdown came in 2020, uh, I did one of the records was from uh, Malm to Mizzen and back again, the double, run um, and I'd always tried numerous times to break two days to direct 48 hours I, I always that was what we were trying to do and in 2020 we did 44 hours and uh, but in that event the evidence of taking the sport to the people the whole way literally from I started in Malin Head to go to Mizzen and come back there was people on the side of the road with their families they were obviously in lockdown and they were at their gateway with their whole family, big placards fancy dress, all sorts all the whole way down through Ireland and back again and that was that was a great uh, you know we, we got a lot out of that in that you know here was the evidence to say that if you if we take this that there's people actually really really interested in this like and we had really good fun on that man yeah 44 hours that's that's some feat man like you know that's that's like that, did you have much of a team around you helping you achieve that like, oh yeah we had the, the full team was there on that event like that was it was a eight ten actually uh yeah team on that. it was a full team like to support mm-hmm. that um as well as the wild Atlantic wave is also a full 10 person team to support that like uh, those are big big events like so they are and uh when i say big events they're big races like you know and uh the, the malnamism is so infamous like in Ireland, like because there's so many people who use it as a you know charity run and, and people who just do it as challenges and whatever it's very very well known like and uh and i'd always try to do you know to try and break two days on it was a day down and a day back <laughs> and, uh, i came close a couple of times like i the first time i tried it i was you know i was actually the first time i tried it actually was because earlier in our conversation i had told you that you know, I had to change my mindset around, you know, the bravado to the, well, in the, pro- in the process of that change, um, the, the reason I did Malandamism and back the first time, which I think was, I'm going to say 2000, maybe 15 or 16 around there somewhere, was to be able to do exactly what Fabio Biasalo said on the start line in 2009 to be able to ride for 50 hours. That's what I set off to do. But I knew that I needed to change my mindset to do that. 
but I needed evidence to say that that was real, that I could do that. And the only place in Ireland that we could get 50 hours was to go from all in the middle and back. Mm. And that's where that came out of. And, uh, and so we did do that. And uh, I did, I think it was just under 50. It was 49 hours and 37 minutes or something. But that was the first time that I'd ever managed to go that distance without actually sleeping or stopping. So I'd actually, the mindset had changed. Uh, so from that point, I left that, that was on, that was on June 21st, I always remember it was the longest day in the year. And uh, about a month later, I went to a race called Nocum in Texas, uh, in a place called Alpine. And I did a thousand miles in 80 hours with no sleep. Uh, 80 hours with no sleep? No sleep. Used the same method um, that we had been practicing in Ireland. And that was literally a month later and I did 80 hours. but what I learned from it was that if I was to take that concept of what I had just done and rode for 80 hours, I was able to do it, but it took a long time to recover from it. Um, yeah. So then I realized that the 50 marker point, 50 hours was, let's call it the, the optimal for if you do 50 hours in race across America, you can recover from it and you can keep going. Mm. And that's what they, that's what the world guys were all doing. Uh, and, but it took an awful lot of effort and work and, and trial and error, training sessions and trying and trying to get it right before we managed to do it. And, and now it's the norm. It's yeah. like when I, did, when I did Wild Atlantic Way uh, in August, August there, we did a thousand kilometers with looks like, you know, I mean, stuff, you know, just cold changes for rain and stuff like that. Wow. Joe, I could talk to you all day or listen to you all day. But I'm going to wrap it up very shortly um, because I want to ask you one more thing, okay? So I've asked you lots about, you know, your how you prepare yourself mentally, physically, nutritionally. But I want to see what's next on the cards for Joe Barr and team. So, like, what what's the next thing coming up in the pipeline? Uh, well, I, I think uh, 2022 is the next, you know, is where we're going next. And it's a very short window of time um, to that's happening. We're, I'll probably be going, uh, we're planning a training camp in Florida in January. We're going down there to do some specific uh, speed work uh, just because we can get on the heat and, and get on traffic free roads. Um, that combination is crucial for what we do. So we'll go there. We're, we're looking at doing the Sebring race, the 24 hour race in the middle of February. Uh, we have another big world record coming for Ireland. I'm not allowed to talk too much about that. <laughs> but let's just say in April we we have another world record and it's going to be very interesting and it's uh and it's big it's big like right. uh, so we have that um and it's purposely set there because uh there's a window of time then till I need to recover and I'm going into Arizona to get ready for the heat for Race Cross America that we start in uh June 14th right. uh, and you know we're, we're going there with you know, to try and get a big result. And um, like in 2019, when I won the category, you know, it's a hard act to, <laughs> you know, to go back to and not be, be at least equal. <laughs> so, yeah. so we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to try to go back and, and really perform and, and round. And after that, we're not sure. Um, 
we, we would like to consider racing around Ireland, I certainly would, uh, again, now that we know it's running. However, that's really going to depend on how I come out of Race Across America and how I can recover for that. And, uh, and Race Around Ireland's my favourite race. Like, it's, it's, it's where I started. It's it's a, part, it's a huge part of my story. Like, so it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I when I went back in 2018, after I hadn't been to it from my one on twenty nine and two zero nine, and I went back in twenty eighteen and I won again. Again, there's, we we made a fantastic documentary about that called Unbreakable. It was on BBC or is it? Oh, you is can it see on? that actually if you go on to uh, if you go on to our Facebook page at cool. Team Joe Bar, you'll I'll be able to get it on our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel it's called uh, Unbreakable, and it's the story of the two thousand eighteen definitely watch that now tell me this also you got a book as well so what's the what what, what do what, what should people expect from your book so is it just your life story or is it is it, is it a portion of your life or how, how is it yeah, i think when someone will say well, how i would describe it i'd say it's a it's a lifelong apprenticeship of forward that's that's yeah. how i would that's how i would describe it um you know it's it's all the different phases and decades and 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 it's a story really of when you look, when I look back on it, it's a story of of the help that sometimes you don't actually realize that you're being given on your journey. Uh, you, you you don't recognize it, and you, you don't see it for its true value. Uh, and one of the big parts, one of the big themes in the book is really the sheer number of families that I passed through that all contributed and helped on this journey that has led to where I am right now. Uh, so yeah, so it's a uh, it's it's a uh, it's, it's a lifetime of, of an apprenticeship trying to be a grandmaster. master. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Joe, for coming on. No, I appreciate appreciate you coming on for this chat. Thanks for having me on. All appreciate right. It. Take it easy. See you, Joe. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. See, you. See you. And that was Joe Barr. Yeah, very fascinating story about of endurance and life and just kind of very honest and very passionate about what he does. And I appreciate you listening to Joe's story. That's Joe Barr. My name is Shane. This podcast called Heartlines. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, Remember, you're always welcome here in Heartlines. Take it easy and bye.